You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. This is Melanie, and in the future, you'll be able to purchase memories. So, that girl that said no to the dance, well, now she says yes. And you know, that time you fell on your face and lost that race, well, now you win it. So, everybody can be the, the overconfident douche that we all wish we could be. This is Jesse, and in the future... Local government and meteorologists will collaborate with car makers to create safer road conditions. Unfortunately, this will lead to executive overreach where cities will now be able to shut down your cars and force you to stay home during snow emergencies. So bright side, no car wrecks. Downside, you're staying home, whether you like it or not. Big Brother is watching. This is Randy, and in the future... Microsoft Outlook will come up with a feature to make it easier to search through your old emails so that Randy can find his future prediction list for Matt D. Welcome to the Grounds Podcast. Thank you, Matt D. Yep. This is episode. <laughs> this is episode sixty. What did we? What? Eighty. <laughs> Eighty. Eighty-eight. Sixty. Eighty. Eighty. Eighty-eight. Eighty-eight. Or is it? Or was I just misdirecting you? No, it's eighty-eight. This is episode number eighty-eight. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. It's a little early in the episode to be busting in with a time travel segment. However. This is Randy from the future, and I'm here to tell you at the time of recording this episode, our heroic trio did not know this was also going to be an interview episode. After recording this episode, I actually lined up a one-on-one -on -one interview with comic book writer Caleb Tussaud. Caleb is currently kickstarting an awesome-looking comic book called Nook, a World War II ghost story. You should definitely check that out. This is, this is Caleb's ninth Kickstarter. So if you ever wanted to hear Kickstarter tips, definitely check out this interview, but also hear him talk about this cool project. First, you'll hear our poll list review of a comic book, which the trio from the past is about to tell you about, and then we'll kick into the interview with Caleb. Enjoy. It's a poll list episode, ladies and gentlemen. What's a poll list? I'm glad you asked, Melanie. So a poll list is, it's a poll and a list. And you can find it on our website at grolixpodcast.com. And what do we mean by poll and list? It's a list of comics. That's also a poll, so you can vote on this list of comics. You can also add your own suggestions to this list of comics. And every month, we look at the one in the number one slot with the most votes, and that's what we read for next month. Last month, the winner was Blood Realm. Ooh. Blood Realm. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this episode. We'll be discussing Blood Realm issues one through three. And next poll list episode. We will be looking at, it's weird, it's weird. I feel like we've read some of this guy's stuff before. We'll be looking at Outcast by Robert Kirkman. I feel like he huh. came up last episode. Uh, he's winning like he with 31% of the votes. 
Outcast. I've never read any Outcast. I don't even know what it is. It's by Robert Kirkman, though. He does great stuff. I have some Humble Bundle Outcast, I believe. So nice. that's good news for me. <laughs> nice. And good news to anybody that uh, that picked up that Humble Bundle. We uh, have an affiliate link, right? Is it Grolic's Podcast slash Humble? Grolic'spodcast.com slash Humble. Because we are. We're humble. Wow, we we transitioned right into promotion for this. If you're picking up a comic book Humble Bundle, you might as well find it through that link and we'll get a little, we may get a little kickback if you so choose yeah kick us some money back we don't have to get a kickback you can choose not to give us money that's fine yeah but that, that's that's not nice but you can still use the you can still use the link and it gets us i don't know karma i guess good good karma. good karma humble bundle karma and if you don't like uh giving us money through affiliate links you could give us money a little more directly if you wanted to become i don't know a patron a patron? How would they do that in this modern day and age? You would go to patreon.com and you can even search for us on patreon.com because we're out of jail. Oh, I can't believe we haven't mentioned this prior. Yeah, we're out of the we're out of Patreon jail. Uh we were marked as adult only for a while, which meant we didn't actually show up on the site unless you searched for us, unless you like went to our link directly. We're out of jail because you were not adults. We're not adults and we're not adult only. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, so now you can find us if you if you type in the Grolox podcast on the search bar in Patreon. Or if you use the direct link. Yeah, patreon.com slash podcast. And you get all kinds of extra bonus stuff. Extra bonus episodes like every month. And uh, other fun stuff when we happen to put them up there. When we have to think happen to think of it. <laughs> Yeah, so we this episode we will be talking about Blood Realm. Are we going to kick right into the comic? Yeah, let's kick it. Yes, let's kick right into the comics. Uh, we read Blood Realm, issues number one through three. Mm-hmm. And Blood Realm is a series from, it's published by Alterna Comics, written with art by Robert Geronimo, lettering by Thomas Maurer. This is a 17 plus dark fantasy. 17 plus, really? That's like NC 17? Not NC 17. It's more like rated R. Three supernatural beings known as the Sisters of Silence must embark on a treacherous quest to stop a bloodthirsty general from obtaining a sacred relic powerful enough to obliterate the last kingdom of men. This was added to our pull list, I suspect, by somebody who might have ties to Alterna comics. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not though. Maybe somebody just read it. It's like, you know what? You guys re- need some super indie stuff. Can I, can I give my, my overall opinion? Of course. I felt like I was watching one of those, this movie in 30 seconds done by bunnies. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I can get on board with that. I think I kind of had the same feeling, but not quite exactly that. Mm-hmm. It felt like the prologue to a story for almost the entire story. Yeah. Is maybe why it felt that way. And I think there are like, this is a limited series and they're already starting like the next one or the ongoing, or I I don't know what the next one is, but this one's a limited series. And I'm inclined to agree. This might be like, I don't know if it's a proof of concept or if it's like a prequel or if it's like previously on (laughs) <laughs> you know, whatever. X Men, yeah, X Men or uh, the Walking Arrow, Dead, but something that people actually watch. I was say, <laughs> wait, I, I, those are the 
Those are the shows that come to my mind when I hear previously on. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the X-Men. That's burned in my brain from when I was a kid. <laughs> they did. They had the to do that a lot well, because all the crazy X-Men storylines. That's why that cartoon was so good. Well, that's, But it does go somewhere, though. So that's why I say the 30-minute done by bunnies because it's like it's like they took these the big important parts of an actual story and we're like here's this and then this and then this and then this and then and then act like that that's the whole story but that's not the parts of the story that anybody wants to read about <laughs> i mean i mean they do want to read about them but you know what i mean it's not like the, okay. the character's development or anything it's like so to explain listener it's very much like there's there's like no speech bubble, like word balloons. Mm-mm. There might be some, but I don't re- recall any of it. It's a lot of, I feel very nice art. Like I, the sty- yeah. I like the style. It's a lot of splash pages, full, full page, you know, full page art. And uh, what would you call it? I guess narration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, it feels like it's all like prologue because it's a lot of world building. It's establishing. It's all, it's, it's almost all lore. It's like this all grand story. That you get in little snippets of narration that feels like it sets up the bigger story, what you're actually going to read. It's just that is kind of the story that you're reading. That's how it's told. And it does get to a point, especially towards the end, where it's a little bit more linear. You're following these characters as they're doing a thing. But it doesn't ever really feel like it switches out of prologue mode. Well, that's because the voice of the person giving you all this information is in the last couple pages, the person that it becomes the story about. Meek. Yeah. This little. Yeah. Meek. Meek. Which totally made me think of, made me think of Reek from. uh, Reek from Game of Thrones. Yeah. That's what popped in my head. I don't know why. But anyway. (laughs) Oh man. I'm, I'm thinking about the story as with him now, the character would pretty much be exactly the same. (laughs) Uh, so it's a little weird because it's like there's prose and artwork and a lot of comics combine them a little bit better (laughs) right but that didn't seem to be the point of this one it's almost like they created the it's almost like they created the story via the art like a almost like a bizarre twist of the Marvel, like the old, old school Marvel method where they would do all the art. Of course, I'm, I'm sure they still scripted out what was going to happen, but like they did all the art and then they came back in later and they added the bubbles. And that sometimes is what this feels like. Like they made a bunch of awesome looking posters almost or pseudo, it looks like pseudo block print. And then they were like, okay, well, we know the story and now we have to tell it. Now we got to plug in the words. I felt more like it was, you know, like old manuscripts that they had like a bunch of monks together. It'd be like, there'd be like a page of print and then a page of picture because they'd have somebody else. They'd have different people doing the, Uh the two parts so that like this one person would just do all the story. And then another person would come in and do the other stuff later. I feel definitely like he had the story in mind. Mm-hmm. And maybe he'd written it all out long form because at the end of each issue, there are longer chunks of text that retell the story Yeah, a yeah. little bit more thoroughly than what's actually in the artwork even. Mm-hmm. So I feel like he probably had it all written out, did the art, and then just kind of put the chunks of text 
to explain like what part of the story this is mm-hmm. where necessary. Or they were going to make a Samurai Jack style cartoon and then it fell through. So they were like, oh, well, let's just let's just throw the words on the side now. That's and- kind of funny because <laughs> Samurai Jack popped in my head a little bit a couple times while reading this. Because of the way the dark like swirls into yes, different stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think of it, but it's perfect. You're right. This sounds like a lot of criticism and it's a little bit of criticism, I suppose, but I don't know that it's necessarily all that negative for me mm-hmm. because feeling like it never gets out of prologue mode is kind of a problem for me. But for the most part, like it just feels like a different way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like your standard comic book style storytelling. So that, you know, is maybe obviously it'll throws me off a little bit, but it's not necessarily a, a serious negative. Mm-hmm. I think the most negative aspect to it is I just wasn't invested in the story mm-hmm. like i didn't really care about the lore the problem is the lore's big grand you get this big grand story but i had there's no connection to anybody in it like mm-hmm. even after we are you know meet meek really i just didn't really have a connection to it so for the most part it was just like kind of cool fantasy land not conan the barbarian but that kind of fantasy world building story mm-hmm. backstory with some super awesome art because I like the art a lot, and that's really my overall take on it. Yeah, I yeah. I'm a, I'm kind of of two minds on this thing. It's like I I'm with you on the art. I absolutely love the art. In fact, I could have done without any words at all and not known the story. You know, like take all the words out, I probably still would have enjoyed flipping through the pages. I wouldn't have known why I enjoy it, but <laughs> uh-huh. I probably would have enjoyed it as much or more than having a story kind of slapped in there. Now on the converse, I think there is probably an interesting story here, but in this case, maybe it's the art that is distracting me from the story because I love the art. Maybe this would be better if there were no art, you know, like if it were, I mean, if, cause <laughs> well, what it, what it feels like to me is it feels like a prose story. It feels like HP Lovecraft mm-hmm. meets J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, like it feels like Lord of the Rings meets some kind of crazy, insane Cthulhu stuff. And I love I love what it does visually, but like if you're gonna tell me that story, I almost need my imagination to go crazy with it. Like mm-hmm. take now take the pictures away and tell me the story. I might actually listen. <laughs> you know, but for now, yeah. I'm looking at these incredible almost uh woodcut looking prints that every single page tends to be yeah so the artwork is very like black and white high contrast there's no like gray tones and red there might be other colors but i remember black white and red specifically Mm. and it's like you like jesse said like woodcut there's lots of intricate designs in some of the, the people's costumes and just i also really like how the pages are laid out like there are some pages with like sequential panels but there are also several pages, and this is particularly at the beginning when it's feeling most prologue where it's a sequence, but it's all blends together. It's not like individual panels. It's like there's the big like queen lady or whatever yeah. along the side of the page. And then you can see like there's a couple there's a sequence along, you know, smaller characters doing the sequence next to her. And I don't know. I just really like the layouts mm-hmm. and the look of it. I will say characters, I think the characters that intrigued me most, what I was most interested in, and I think Meek, I think it's a cool idea to give this like 
maybe that's it. There's like no human characters to really grab onto, but I think he's a potentially a super interesting character because his name's a little on the nose, but he's meek. <laughs> yeah. But he's this like goblin red demony looking goblin guy. And that's, that's your narrator. That's kind of becomes your main character. And He's potentially awesome, but I was super fascinated by the three sisters, but you don't really get to know anything about him. And maybe that's part of what's fascinating by him because they're not quite, they're definitely not quite human. They have these crazy powers, but they're also super mysterious. Mm-hmm. Like you don't get to know, like you get to know about Gorn and the queen and the queen's daughter who you only ever see in like panels that talking about how she died and all this. You don't really get to know much about the three sisters. And they have they have a Leviathan baby. That's interesting, but you don't get to see that either. It disappears. And three issues isn't a lot to get stuff done. And this is a quick read. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Because even though I said you know, it's it's kind of prosy when there is like narration there. Mm. There's really not that much. No. There will be like a paragraph per page, where the rest of the page is artwork. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's a quick read. So maybe it's just a matter of like. It's not that the prologue goes on too long. It's just there's not enough of the total story there to justify. Is it done? It's done then? There, there's going to be a volume two that comes out. Okay, good. Because if it was the beginning, it'd be the awesome beginning to a story. But at, as its own thing. What's there feels like the first issue and a half to two issues should be compressed down to a few pages at the beginning of the first issue. And the story is following Meek and these three sisters. Yeah. Because when you break the story down to what it is, like that's conventionally, mm. that's what the story would be. Right. It's just that prologue part is like almost two issues and that flows directly into the actual like quote unquote adventure is still part of the prologue part. It's mm. just all this big, this story. And a lot of it, I think is unnecessary because it seems like they tell the story and then they retell it again. Either closer there is a lot to the of situation that, or farther away from the situation. There uh, is a there's stuff in the first issue that gets retold. Almost everything in the first issue, I think, gets retold. Yeah, and in the second and third. Not necessary. It's it's one of those things where I don't want to like I, I it feels like we're totally ragging on it. I don't think it's bad at all, and it's one of those things where it's I shouldn't, but I always feel a little extra bad for being critical of books that are by essentially one person. I know this had a letterer. But it was written with art by this one person. So it's this it's this guy's vision. Yeah. So I always feel a little, I don't know. Well, Because you're not picking on a team. It feels like you're picking on a guy. I'm not trying to pick on not, the guy. It's not even necessarily that we're, I think we're picking on him. It, it's, it's just good. my impression of the story. It's good in general, though. I agree. It makes me, it does make me want to read on. Like I, I legitimately yeah. looked to see if the new one had started, if they had issues of it on Comicsology, because I believe it's out in print already. Like the first issue of Volume Two is already out on print, which leads us into a sidebar discussion. Uh, you guys read the digital version, and mm-hmm. I went ahead and and popped for the print version. I have mixed feelings about the print version. Oh, I do. I do like it. I do like it. But the thing is that Alterna Press is really doubling down on their on the fact that they're making things affordable and it is super affordable. If you're even remotely curious, you are not going to spend a ton of money on this just, uh, you know, to give it a look. You're you're not out a lot. It's it's very it's very much worth your time to take a look at this. Because it's like you got the physicals for like a buck fifty each, right? Yeah, they're like a buck fifty each. And what what were yeah. the digitals? They're like a buck. 99 cents. Yeah. Yep. So what? 
three dollars total. You know, three dollars total if you're getting it digitally, and you get that instantaneously through Comixology. I bought mine through their Alterna store, which I think is like an Etsy shop. The disappointing thing for me about the process was that the shipping legitimately cost more than the comics. <laughs> yeah. It cost five dollars to ship them, and it was a buck fifty a piece. So I yeah. was like, if you're going to do that, you you kind of need to make it worth your time in terms of ordering quite a few issues. But yeah. even then, even then, I didn't spend a lot of money. I mean, like, you can't go to a comic book store and grab a couple. Of, you can grab three comics from a local retail store for the same amount of money as I did. You know, I mean, like, because mm-hmm. each comic is probably going to cost you three upwards of three dollars anyways. So, I mean, yeah. did I really lose out? No. And I supported a, you know, a little bit more in indie group. So I, I don't feel bad about it. But at the same time, looking at the print printing on newsprint, it washes things out a little bit. I feel like it would have been a little bit more high contrast if I had just gone with the digital. So I'm interested mm-hmm. to see what the digital panels look like, because there's just something about newsprint that is a little duller, a little flatter. And I just hadn't remembered that because I haven't read newsprint for a while. I know the newsprint thing is like, it's pretty clever of them Mm. for one to keep costs down, but they also use it as like a selling point. It's like a retro chic kind of thing. Yeah. It's like classic comics. We're printing on newsprint. I get it. Like it's fun, (laughs) but there's a reason comics don't on newsprint. Newsprint breaks down. It's like (laughs) self-destroying. Over time, yeah, they, uh, comics improved the quality, and mm-hmm. moving away from newsprint was an improvement. But then again, you could still buy new music on cassette. So, like, I get the point. I get, I get using that as a selling point, and can it's you, clever. Can you buy new music on a record? Yeah, oh, you can buy music on a record easier than you buy music on a cassette. Okay, but you can still get music on both. Eight track. That's where it's at. That's the next. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, the next yeah. phase. Hipster music is eight, eight super track. tough to find that. Good luck. <laughs> your yeah. your custom eight tracks. Yeah, I was curious to see what the uh how the newsprint would fare. I guess that's kind of a downside with something like this because it does look so so good. I would think in a nice a nice print copy, this would look great with, with some of the artwork. Mm-hmm. But then again, maybe the newsprint adds to the kind of eighties fantasy feel that this had for me a little bit. Yeah. Or maybe we could be like, hey, do a Kickstarter. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have you on the show. We'll give you a confusing review for your possible Kickstarter comment. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like there is an artist, uh, Franz Mazaril. He was known for doing uh, basically graphic novels in the 20s, the 1920s. He's a German expressionist and uh, a big influencer on me in terms of like artwork that I've done. And that's that's kind of what he did was just stark black and white block printing uh, and told stories without words. That's what it made me think of. And then I got the, the newsprint and I didn't get it in that full, you know, that full black and white experience. And I was like, Oh, and it also made me wonder about like the process. Like, I don't think these are actually woodcuts. I'm pretty sure this is created digitally, but it mimics a woodcut in so many ways in it right down to the way that it's got like a distressed, almost wood grainy type of look to a lot of the panels or a lot of the plates. It's just like, mm, I would have liked to seen 
this up against a full, true, bright white as opposed to mm-hmm. this kind of grayish newsprint. So it was good, but I, I think it could have, that with the contrast pumped up a little bit, it would have looked even better, a little sharper. The releasing schedule is a little strange, but I, that kind of seems to be common with indie publishers that aren't necessarily like bound to diamond type releasing. Right. Because when we were searching this out, part of the reason Jesse went with print is because issue three wasn't available digitally at that point in time. I don't know why. Right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in comiXology and I could not, you can, there's some digital copies you can buy from their Etsy store, but I think they only had issue three for digitally. Yeah. It was something weird like that. So Jesse ordered the three print copies, the three, you know, one through three in print. And then I think the next day or so, they had all three up in Comixology, and I bought those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was so, literally like that. Like the next day, it was like, I had just bought them. And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, I would say Alterna. Like your site's nice. I like their site. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish I knew where they prefer us to go, and maybe they don't care. You can get to their Comixology listings pretty easy from their site. But for the most part, I kind of wish how to buy comics from them was a little bit more straightforward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? To get the physicals, you do end up going to their Etsy store in itself is a little weird. I don't mind that, mm-hmm. but I don't know. It's a little confusing. Like I had just a slight moment of like, I'm trying to buy these comics from you, Alterna, but I can't. Where do I get these? I should not have to bust out my Google Foo to buy my buy your comics. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe it's just we happen to hit it at a weird time in terms of the releasing, and I have no idea what goes into that. the decisions for that. I know I've heard some indie publishers say like, it'll be on Comixology sometime soon, as soon as they approve it. So like, I know it's, it's not always on them, you know? Yeah. Right. And they have a lot of indie people too. So it's not like it's just a couple of creative teams like the big two have. It's like everyone's their own show. Everyone is their own show. (laughs) Can you imagine if everybody was their own show in life? (laughs) Like the Truman show? Yeah. We're not going to talk about the elephant in the room when it comes to Alterna Comics. Me? <laughs> no, not you. <laughs> Jeez. Melanie, don't be so mean to yourself. Self-deprecating today. But I will acknowledge that the, the elephant exists. Jesse and I had a, I know I'm bringing it up and maybe I'll cut all this, but we had a brief discussion in Messenger the other day before recording this episode about whether we should even mention it. Right. And we have intentionally not dove into this thing. And if you have no idea, if you're like Melanie and have no idea what we're talking about, this is all going to sound like nonsense. But if you know, and chances are, if you're clued into the comic community online at all, you know, we've intentionally not ever touched that topic because it's such a toxic discussion. If you even want to call it that, that once it sticks on you, like you can't get it off. Right. It's just there. I feel like Alterna has that issue where it's stuck on them. Right. Yeah. For better or worse, they kind of made their bed. Yeah. That's all. I just wanted to acknowledge it without actually going into it. Um, Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I think even acknowledging it though, it's going to be stuck on us. No, no, there's nothing stuck on us. It's trailing behind. It's like a, it's a, 
nasty toilet why, paper, why public we... restroom toilet paper that's stuck on the bottom of your shoe trailing behind. It's now. like reporting or... the news, though. We're we're just saying, hey, it happened. Yeah, and I don't even know what it is. <laughs> so how can it be stuck on me? I know it's like that one time when I had a I had a pad stuck to the bottom of my foot. <laughs> a panty liner pad. <laughs> yeah, a panty liner pad. <laughs> it wasn't like gross or anything. It was just just happened to get stuck to my shoe, and I didn't notice until I was out in public. It's just this unpleasant thing that nobody <laughs> wants to deal with. We all know it's there, but sometimes you see it. <laughs> sometimes oh. it gets stuck on your shoe. Oh. You can't get it off. What's this stuck to my? Oh, never mind. There's nothing stuck to my and shoe. I, I can't get it off. Like it's not like you can just be like, huh? You, you gotta like. Lift your foot up and peel that yeah. off, and you can't just do that with, uh, nonchalantly. It's the it type of happen. stuff you, it takes a stick to get it off your shoe, and then you're just working at it for a while. <laughs> oh wait, that's not panty liner pad. That's something else. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! This is the that's this is the best conversation about that that anyone's ever had. <laughs> this is the kind. Of, appreciate- the kind of, uh, co- this is the kind of commentary that you come to Grolix for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate how blissfully unaware horrible internet stuff Melanie is. Yeah. It's because I don't. You're not tied into it, keyed into it at all, which is no. not bad. I, I get on the internet. I look at sciencey articles and that's pretty much it. And then I get off. And sometimes I get on Pinterest. I'll, oftentimes I'll mention things and then I'll have to explain it to you. There's certain things like that, and not long ago, I think I had to explain to you what SJW was. I think that got cut from an episode. I don't remember if it ended up in an episode or if it was before we recorded or what. But I just appreciate that you just don't even know. You don't care. Mm-mm. But there's certain things when I it comes up, and I'm just like, never mind. You don't want to know. You're better off not knowing. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> There are definitely a lot of conversations, not just about this, but a lot of stuff going on online right now. Some of it's important. Some of it's not. Some of it's just pointless bickering. Yeah. I don't know. To wrap up, would you guys recommend Blood Realm? I would recommend it when the rest of it's done and it's an actual full story. I think I would recommend it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I don't know if waiting from issue to issue because it's such a quick read anyways i don't know mm-hmm. if that would have improved the reading experience at all not at all no i wouldn't be able to tolerate that i'll definitely add on to that that you know of course depending what volume two is like and where it goes this i think once it's you know he's told the story he wants to tell I'm not necessarily going to say whether it's complete or not but once he's told the story he wants to tell with it, I think would make it a pretty killer trade, like a collected, like a graphic novel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On some nice white paper. Mm-hmm. The price point's pretty good. It's it's interesting. It's unique. I would recommend it to certain people if I knew they were into certain things, mm-hmm. like fantasy, especially there's not really barbarians, but like just, it makes me think of Conan. No, you need to be like, hey, if you want to see... Lord of the Rings in 30 seconds done by bunnies, then you'll love this. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. But it's 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 or better yet, done by Samurai Jack. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, there you go. I think if you like dark fantasy stuff and if you're a fan of certain kinds of artwork, like I definitely recommend this. I think it's I think it's interesting. I don't know that you'd have to necessarily have to go search it out. It's not necessarily a must read, but if you're looking for something different. 
and you want to check out something indie, yeah, I'd recommend it. It checks a lot of cool boxes. I mean, like, like I say, it it reminds me of H.P. Lovecraft. It reminds me of Lord of the Rings. It reminds me a little bit of like the Dark Crystal, especially once we started talking about like how it feels like a prologue. The Dark Crystal had a prologue at the beginning of the movie, and it it kind of reminds me of this too. So it's all those things plus super interesting artwork. And I want to find out. I want to find out what happens to Meek because he. He ate that thing, and and then what does he turn into a bad guy? Well, or does he become all powerful? Or what happens? I, I just want to know. I, I can tell you, the meek will inherit the earth. That's that's good. Uh, that's probably where it came from. Where? Uh, what, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I will say the world that it's building. There are some interesting. There are some kind of interesting, somewhat unique elements to it. The actual story, the look. It's a little generic. I had I had a question though. It's a little generic. So they said they talk about the world of man and then they talk about something about humans. So is man in this human man or is man in this some other creature that is man and then humans are humans? No, I think it's human man. Okay. Who's your favorite character like like either design or like story-wise, story beat? I don't know that if I I think story-wise my favorite character is the three sisters. Yeah, they're pretty interesting and like weird and they seem I could I guess they just look like nuns, but they seem the most unique. They seem like the most original characters in this. I was thinking that they were like the uh, the three, you know, they share an eyeball. The three fates, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. From the Greek anyway, mythology. Yeah, that's why I was thinking they were at first, but then they weren't. And so I was like, oh, OK, well, that's cool. That's better than. It definitely sets them up to be super powerful, and it's not that they aren't. They are, but they also, like, spoilers, kind of dis- get dispatched fairly quick. Yeah. But then again, that's also kind of down to this feeling very compressed, where we see them in three encounters, and each of the encounters, one of them gets killed off. So, mm-hmm. like, there's not a sense well. of, like other encounters where they didn't get killed off, you know, the, the one kind of does it herself. Which one? The last one. Oh yeah. Yeah. But she did, was there to do what she was supposed to do. Well, and, and that ties into one of my favorite, like designed characters is this weird Lord Cyphus, his face on the third issue or whatever. Super interesting design. I would say design wise, really just because of what he did with the artwork i kind of like the queen because oh yeah she just looks like you know whatever queen lady but then at one point it's just like she started aging or something or like melting melting and like it cuts to her later and like she's got this crazy cracked up zombie face and i was like whoa (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. i thought that was super cool yeah meek's not a bad looking character either yeah they're all pretty good gorn is like he's not my favorite but he has some Really cool. Is he the one with the shots. sword arm thing? Yeah. Yeah. He's the king of the <laughs> satyrians or whatever, or the general. I, lo- I love the sword arm thing because maybe that's why it feels like old school fantasy to me because that uh, n- nowhere near that good. I was, I was never that good at drawing, but that seems like something I would draw when I was a kid, like a dude with a sword arm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. You know, <laughs> it's like this big w- wide blade on his for an arm. Well, what, fun. 
when we first started reading it, I was a little concerned it was going to be like the Babadook. And <laughs> I was like, uh, but then it wasn't like that at all. I love their eyes sometimes. <laughs> they're all like, ah! you know, man, man, like, they get the sisters out. or all of things them. freak yeah. out in the, in this story. Also, I thought Gorn got killed and then he showed up again. Yes. Yeah. That was a little confusing. Yeah. It's just Mortal Kombat rules where it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, cause maybe that was somebody before Gorn. Was it at the end of issue two? It looked like he, he died. And then, uh, then they're all in there with the heart and then they walk out and nope, he's fine. He got better. And now, the interview. I'm here with Caleb Tussaut. Caleb is currently running a Kickstarter to fund his book, Nook. And uh, how's it going today, Caleb? It's going very well. So, we've talked to people running Kickstarters, and a lot of times, you know, if they're running a Kickstarter, they're doing outreach and they'll approach us. But I actually approached you on this one because I saw one of your tweets it had a link to uh, like part one of the book. I don't know. I, randomly, I was <laughs> apparently looking for something to do. And I was like, hey, what's this? I'll check it out. And uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. So I reached out to you because, yeah, I wanted to talk about this book. So That's awesome. Before we get into that, I guess, tell us a little bit about yourself. Have you worked on other comic projects before? Yeah, so basically... Fresh out of college, a number of years ago, I started working in independent film in the Chicago area, and I had all these crazy ideas for writing scripts. But independent film is ridiculously expensive, Mm -hmm. so I decided to bring these ideas to comic book form, and I kind of jumped into it about three and a half years ago. And I just dove in, wrote three issue one scripts, and... I've kind of never looked back because as soon as I ran issue one of my Alter Life sci-fi series and funded it on Kickstarter, I was like, oh, now I'm just going to keep building the audience and do as much as I can. So I've over the past three years, I've run nine Kickstarters. and <laughs> Wow, really? Yeah, it's people think I'm nuts for doing that, but I just kind of I did issue by issue of Alter Life, which was a five issue limited series, and then we did the trade edition of it in last summer, and then I have done two issues of like a buddy action zombie superhero series that I write. It's called Zed, and then I dove into this Zed series, which was kind of a different type of undertaking than both of the other two projects and they've all been well up to nook they've been mildly successful but nook has kind of taken off so that's where we are interesting okay and i do want to touch on that in a moment too as to like (laughs) why you think maybe nook has taken off but first i guess let's talk a bit about nook maybe what caught my eye is it's kind of an intriguing premise and it doesn't seem like it's not like other horror-themed stuff with Nazis in it. It seems yeah. to come from a more pers- uh, emotional place, maybe, as opposed to just like, hmm. what's evil? Nazis. Let's yeah. make them monsters. So so tell, tell us a little bit about your inspiration for Nook. Where did that come from? Yeah, it came from a couple crazy places. A few years ago, before I had a kid, I had this weird dream about 
moving into this old house that had a carriage house connected to it. And I don't know where these crazy dreams come from, but the person selling me the house told me that this little door on the side of it was where some girl got locked in and starved to death. And I had this crazy vivid memory of this dream when I woke up and I kind of kept toying with it and wanted to write it into a story. And then I kind of have a crazy obsession with World War II stories and ghost stories. So I started to play with ideas within that. And then also I have a family history that one of my great grandparents escaped World War II Germany and moved to the United States. Some of the of that family got caught up in the war and stuck over there. And my family's from the border of Germany and France, which all kind of, with all these things combined, has kind of come together and created this thoughtful and uh, more emotional story that I think you kind of hit the nail on the head most people gravitate towards this, I think, because it's a little less typical of most of the stuff that's being put out in comic book form nowadays. Mm-hmm. I, and I kind of wanted it to be like that. I wanted it to be a horror story that's it's about the horrors of this ghost that the girl finds in the house. But it's also just about the perspective of seeing the horrors that humanity sets on each other through the eyes of this little girl. So, and that kind of all comes from, I'm like obsessed with Guillermo del Toro movies like Pan's Labyrinth and the devil's backbone, which is both of those movies are from a child's perspective Mm -hmm. in a, a time of crazy war. And so I, I kind of infused that idea into this story and I think a lot of people just have gravitated towards it because it feels unique. It's, it's a little bit of this and that from different things that I enjoy reading. And I, that's what I kind of try to do with my books in general. Yeah. I mean, to touch on what you were saying about the supernatural horror aspect and the real life historical horror aspect, I mean, the yeah. real life horror aspect definitely and maybe that's part of it like i wasn't expecting in what i read i wasn't expecting that gut punch at the end and <laughs> i mean so so the real life horror at least for me definitely packs more of an impact than supernatural horror but yeah. that kind of makes sense but i like the supernatural horror as a framing kind of yeah that's 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 awesome that's like that's what i was aiming for cuz that's kind of how I see Guillermo del Toro movies, like he uses that supernatural element as almost just like an element to help tell the story. But the story is really about Mm -hmm. those characters in that moment in their lives in that particular time, the ghost is there and it's significant for some reason or other that's remains a mystery in the beginning of this book. But uh, yeah, the horror is really more about, the reality of what's happening around her. And I'm very, yeah, I'm super interested to, to read 
the uh, the full story because part one ends in a spot where I'm like, what what could be next? Like, where could this go now? So, so I'm very curious as to <laughs> that's find actually out where it goes. Uh, even my artist when he finished it, he was like, what do where do we go from here? Like, where could it possibly go? And I'll just to give you a little hint at where it goes you're going to be seeing the history of where that ghost came from and why it's relevant to the situation. So, and then of course it's all going to come to a head by the end with everything playing its purpose and playing its part. It was essentially made to be a three part series. Some people say part one can completely stand on its own. And I see that, but uh, really it's, just the beginning arc of this three arc storyline that we'll get once this Kickstarter is done, this is going to be the full book and it's going to be all three, three pieces. So you mentioned the artist not knowing where it's going either. Do you want to talk about, talk about the art and working with the artist? Cause one thing that I thought was interesting and I, you know, Jesse's not able to join us on this episode, but I was talking to co-host Jesse and we thought it was really interesting. The art style is kind of, it's got like kind of a cute art style, which I think kind of makes the gut punch towards the end more impactful because you're really not expecting it just because it's the art style is almost disarming. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that very interesting. Do you want to talk about that? It's actually really interesting because the artist that I work with, he accepted this project mainly because it was a huge challenge for him before he really only worked on his own web comic and it's called infra city and it's like power ranger superhero type stuff. Oh, interesting. So this is like way out of his element for as far as his art style. And I kind of just, I tend to write and pick artists hoping that they can do their own thing with it and kind of giving them the freedom to bring what they feel to the table and I think he just, he nailed it with bringing that perspective from the girl's eyes. And that's Mm -hmm. what I wanted. I wanted there to be like this gloss of innocence over everything because that's kind of writing from a little girl's perspective, which is a weird thing to do. You have to kind of set yourself back and say like, how would you view the world and how would you view the war and all the things happening around you? And I think it comes out really well. It's a little intimidating at parts, but it's very cute at the same time. So it's it's like that uh, Coraline, yeah, like Tim Burton-y feel to it, where it's like there's these cutesy things, but they're also kind of creepy and <laughs> grotesque in ways. Yeah, yeah, totally. The other main thing I kind of was had in the back of my mind while reading this was, and reading through some of your tweets about it, I definitely feel like it's intentional, but just kind of the timeliness of a World War II story now. And also seems like there's aspects of, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of refugees. So do you want to talk a little bit about, about that? Sure. I mean, when I started writing this, none of the crazy crap that's happening in this country or around the world, really, that's been brought to light lately. Mm hmm had been happening. So it's just, 
I, it's not dumb luck. It's bad. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't That's a good way to put it. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's very strange that it became as timely as it did. I never intended it when I was writing it, but it proved my point as writing it because it's really a story about humanity's living in cycles Mm -hmm. and life being very cyclical and us kind of being doomed to repeat our past. It made sense when I was writing it, when I was, because I'm basically comparing, just to give you a glimpse, that when we jump back to where the ghost comes from, it is actually essentially from World War One. So we're seeing this cycle play out. Mm-hmm. And that was just something that I thought was a really interesting way of presenting things that are constantly happening and it, this just has become more relevant and more prevalent like on our media and so we can see these things happening mm-hmm. and we know that this all this stuff's happened before it's sad but it's proving the quote-unquote lesson that i'm telling with this tale is that uh, if we don't remember our past we don't learn from it then we're going to be doomed to repeat it over and over again so you said this is your ninth kickstarter Yes, a little crazy, but uh, I did five issues for my sci-fi series. I did, well, and and the fifth issue of that series, we also did the trade of the collected story, and then two issues of my Zed series, and then part one of this, and now the trade. So that's, yeah, crazy enough. This is the ninth time I've come to Kickstarter, but I feel like it's a great place to just build that audience and get people behind a project and mm-hmm. it's become more than just trying to essentially kickstart a career or kickstart a idea or something it's for comics and for some of these media related things it's more of a platform to also sell and build an audience because if i had sell to 100 people one of my comics and they know me from kickstarter they tend to come back through that platform so i it's an amazing tool i would never be able to actually do any of this stuff without it so i'm happy that it's there and able to be used by so many indie creators yeah i'm a big fan of the concept of crowdfunding i i really like the idea of i mean it's being able to work directly with the your potential audience it's them funding it and like it becomes this interesting kind of a i take it super seriously at this point with setting up the campaign early so people can come preview stuff and give me feedback on like what they want from the kickstarter and i try to actually build the project around what the people want to see as far as rewards and covers and all the add-ons and stuff that you throw in there so so a lot of people i've talked to that have run kickstarters it's a lot of work and it seems like they're very frazzled by it by the end do you find it's easier like have you kind of gotten to a flow with it running so many um or is it is it just like crazy every time i would love to say that it gets easier it gets easier in the sense that you know what you're doing but you can never predict it just like any market for anything as far as movies and comics. Like you're not going to be able to predict 
the timing is right and you're not going to be able to predict whether the audience is going to get behind a particular project. So yeah, like my Z series, do you think there's a lot of people like zombies? That's my hardest one to get funded. Really? Even after doing a second issue, the second issue was one of my hardest campaigns. I just ran that in late fall of this past year. And Nook, I funded part one in 13 hours. Wow. Like, it was ridiculous. I'd never <laughs> had that much success behind it. So it's just, it's hard to predict who is going to get behind what. I try to be smart about, like, the pre-campaigning and pre-marketing so that people know that it will launch at a certain time, a certain day, like, building up that hype just like a movie a stu- movie studio would do. You mm-hmm. know, you, you want that. If you just hit the launch button and expect people to come to it, that's where you're starting that 30 days of horror and you're trying to pull people in from this place and another place. And that's part of the problem, I think, with my Z series too. I, I don't do enough of the pre-campaigning sometimes with some of them, but... Nook was a little easier because I spent a year on Patreon building the first issue page by page. And so we had kind of built a little bit of a following through that. And I was just like giving away the first half of that book for like months. So people had an idea that it was something that they wanted. And when I hit that button, it was like 150 people showed up. It's one of those things. It's like, I wish I could say it's easier but it's really just you getting used to dealing with the crisis of the day-to-day. And you get used to the fact that the middle of it's going to be slow. The beginning and end are always going to be heavier. And it's like once you learn how all that stuff works, you won't be freaking out as much when you launch a campaign. But it's definitely a big learning process. And I feel like before I started doing it with Issue 1 – of my sci-fi series, I, I did not know what I was in for. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Sure. So it was an issue. One of that was like me begging friends and family to come on the Kickstarter and check it out. But now it's like, I don't have, I don't need that. I don't need the people supporting my dream quote unquote that a lot of people do. It's more me just selling a good idea to the audience that's there buying comics on Kickstarter. So it's kind of something that you just like with the time of doing more and more of them, it kind of evolves into something else. When this episode goes out, there will be 16 days left on the Kickstarter. And it looks like you're just a little past three fourths of the way funded yeah, on this. We on Nook. have just about two grand left to raise in a little over two weeks. So, I mean, that could be daunting, but I raised over 11 grand for the hardcover sci-fi book that I did last summer. And that one was more expensive and it was a whole learning process of dealing with printers and stuff. So I kind of fine tuned everything and I feel like, I mean, this book is worth picking up and it's only 20 bucks with free shipping for people in the U S. So it's like, I tried to make it, a very cool, very affordable book that people are going to want to snatch up for that price. 
will this be uh, like black and white? Will it look pretty much like part one did or will there, will it be colored? It's going to be full black and white on the interiors, hardcover, outside colored. And I'm doing like the spot UV, cool, glossy, making it all look fancy. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the black and white just for this story, it just made sense. And it, the way Marcelo does the art, I feel like it almost would take away from it to add the color into it. And there's something about, there's almost like a disc connect from certain violence and horror when you have black and white and i feel like it just translates better between the horror of the story and the time frame of it it's it's a it's a historical fiction horror story and i just from the beginning i kind of wanted it to be this black and white that you get lost in the darkness of the certain pages and I've even had people come up to me at conventions getting issue one. They're like, oh, this kind of looks like the, the way he does the lines, it looks like bone almost. Mm-hmm. And I never even had thought of that. But so, so when someone said that, I was like, wow, it really, the way he did it, it does. And maybe that just on its own create, adds that little subtle sense of horror throughout every panel. And to put color on it, I think it would take away from it. So. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of people say the book sell will sell better if it's colored, but I also have saw my Kickstarter get funded in 13 hours, so <laughs> apparently there's people out there that want to read black and white still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe they're right, but I never thought of it like that. It's not like – it never struck me as the way people think of movies and such, you know? Mm-hmm. A black and white movie, even a modern black and white movie – you're going to lose a chunk of audience. And I never really ex- thought of it that way in terms of comics. I'm mm-hmm. sure maybe there's a little bit of a, a little bit of that. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think the black and white, I think that's a good decision. It definitely seems like it would fit what I've read. I didn't go with the standard comic book size. It's actually a magazine size book. Mm. So even the hardcover trade is going to be the bigger magazine size one of the reasons i went with that and when people ask me why would you change it from standard first of all i I just like the way it feels like the the magazine size and then marcelo biak's art i like the inflated panels Mm -hmm. and the way that everything reads is just since he puts so much time and effort in the lines of these pages I, i feel like giving him more page to play with and more space to kind of showcase that art it just feels better once you're reading it it you'll see if you had a normal comic page it would just feel a little tighter to me and i feel like giving him the freedom of the wider page kind of helped telling the story so what do you have planned for after this do you have anything in mind yet or are you just focusing on this for now i have Many, many ideas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, the, one of the funny things I've been working on, which is way off any sort of path that I've done so far, is I'm doing a kid's little, like, board book. Okay. Since I had a kid about a year and a half ago, I when you play with your child, you come up with silly stories and with their toys and stuff. And we have cats. One of the reasons Nook the cat 
we I kind of play off mannerisms of my cat in this story, but I'm going to be kind of playing off of them in this kid's comic. It's going to be comic style in like a little board book for your kid. So I want to be able to reach a younger demographic and I want something for my son to be able to read. And I feel like this, it's like a superhero cat story. So I think it'll have broad appeal and it'll be fun to make. And then after that, I have a couple ideas. I'm still going to probably come back to Zed and try to at least finish like a three to four issue story arc with what we've started. Mm -hmm. But that one's still kind of hard sell. So it's like I'm not super excited necessarily to come back to that one in full force. So I have a couple other crazy ideas that have come from experiences in my life. One of them is actually a play off of it's like a futuristic take on the sci-fi series that I've already written. So it's going to be set in the world of Alter Life, but not about the characters that are in that book. Sure. Um, it's going to be kind of, I call it like Elysium meets Children of Men. Oh, interesting. Kind of feel okay. to it. Again, it's kind of more of a methodical story than it is like a big action piece. So that's how I tend to write there's action involved, but I like stories with interesting, complex characters that you can relate to. And that's kind of where my stories end up going. And hopefully sometime either next early next year, I'll launch a campaign or something like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I have a, a slew of ideas. I just have to kind of put them down and do one, one at a time with the way uh, running these kickstarters kickstarters and stuff. It's like, you can only do so much in a given time. And especially since I have like a one and a half year old, it kind of limits my time <laughs> to devote to multiple projects. Sure. But as he gets older, it uses my time and I'll just keep, I'm not going to stop. I mean, anybody can try to spit out one comic book through a crowdfunding, but I see it as, a chance to keep building on something that I've created. So I'm just going to keep making them at least two or three campaigns per year at this point. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, you might, I think you're the first person I've talked to that's kind of looked at it as kind of, it's like you mentioned earlier, a lot of people are trying to traditionally it's been used to kickstart a career or something. I, I like how you look at it as like, that's kind of the platform you're working on. Yeah, I mean, you, I put my stuff out there. You can go to Comixology and get it. You can go to my website and buy it. But my audience has been built from this community aspect. And I feel like I like the process of having the people that are reading involved in kind of the creation of something. So why not keep bringing it back there? The nice thing is the further I get in the process of doing this, the less I tend to have to raise. So it gets easier to fund these things. Mm -hmm. So like since part one of Nook was like 90% finished with artwork, I only had to pay for basically printing the comic books and shipping them to people. So I, the goal for that was like $1,500. So it was way easier to fund something like that because you have it finished and ready to go. I think a lot of people are like when I first started out, that's kind of my mentality was like, Oh, I'm going to use this to get one made and I'm going to go and 
make enough money with that first one that I'll be able to make the next one. Well, the reality is that ain't going to happen. Like selling one floppy comic book at conventions is not going <laughs> to make you enough money to make more comic books. It's barely going to make you back your table. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my mentality is like, let's just keep talking with, I, I try to make the books more and more affordable and more, like the prices you would go and get a book at, at the store versus kind of inflating it for the purposes of creating through the Kickstarter, which a lot of people are willing to give more because they know it's someone struggling to try to get something made. But I feel like building that audience is easier if you can uh, kind of have a price comparable to like what you would get from a big publisher. Sure. So, yeah, I, so that's kind of where I'm at. Like, this notebook, maybe if I'd have launched it a year or two ago, it might have been a $30 book when I was selling it. But now I I know what I'm doing. I know the process easier. I know how to save money in certain places. And I wanted to make it something that people were like, 20 bucks for a hardcover, like special edition of a book. I feel like it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, like, and then you compare it to other people's projects on Kickstarter, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's actually really affordable. So, I mean, it's it's really cool to see people get a jump start on things through Kickstarter, but I think uh, there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily talking about it that are using it as a platform for selling. And I will admit that it's probably mostly bigger names at this point, mm-hmm. like have ongoing volumes that get released on Kickstarter because they have a huge audience. They can launch a $20,000 Kickstarter and raise it in two days. But uh, I'm not at that point. So yeah, it's like, I'm like in that in between where it's like, this is essentially paying for itself. Like, my books can get made because I've made other books. Hopefully when I get to that next big series that I want to do, it's a lot easier to get these made. And I mean, if I didn't need to use Kickstarter, I probably would still use it. Like I would just have a really low goal and have the people that know my books from Kickstarter, see it when I hit, because those people follow you. And then you, when you hit launch in a campaign, it's like, Hey, this person has a book on Kickstarter. So it's like, why, if you have all your audience, like on a platform, like Comixology, would you switch to something else? I don't know. I feel like Kickstarter has kind of become this other beast in the process of helping people where it's like this bigger platform for comic, especially comic books. Comic books have kind of become, it's almost like its own source of distribution Mm -hmm. uh, at this point, which is amazing so i just want to be there in the mix of everything when everybody's buying the books by all the big names that are coming from idw and image and there's people from marvel and dc that they want to bring their projects to life but publishers might not like that idea Mm -hmm. so they just do it themselves on kickstarter i want to follow that trend and keep making cool books that people might not see anywhere else first off you have a url that redirects to the kickstarter page what is that address it is simply well you have to put in www first for some reason if you put just the 
whatever.com, it doesn't work. So it's www.nookcomic.com. Okay. And where else can people find you online? My website is villagecomicbooks.com. And you can find all my stuff on there. There's links to the Kickstarter. There's links to my social media, different pages, Twitter and Facebook and everything. I make all my stuff readily available. I ship and sell from my webpage and from Comixology. And of course, I'll have I'll have all the links in the show notes for this episode. Awesome. All right, Caleb. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today about this. And I'm very interested to check out the full book when it's completed. Awesome. Thanks for having me, man. It's it's great that pe- to see people excited about this story. And I'm glad you reached out. And I want to thank Caleb once again for taking the time to talk to me. And after the microphones were off, we continued the conversation. We talked more about Kickstarter and online promotion and stuff, stuff that interests me that may not necessarily interest you guys, but it was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun talking to Caleb and, uh, I look forward to possibly having him on the show again someday. Now I'm going to send it back to the past. I don't have any letters. What do we got for in-house news? I know the main thing listeners are going to get tired of hearing this. (laughs) Are they June? No. In June, we're going to be it. The Ocon Expo 2019. Is it that far away? It's going to be here before you know it, though. And this episode goes up on the 18th, yes? Yes. Okay. So if you haven't listened to our episode from the earlier part of the month where we got a message from Jerry the Gnome, where we interviewed Jeff Geegan, this weekend is Grand Comic-Con. And if you're interested in, you know, if you're in, if you're in Nebraska, this is probably not going to do you any good if you're on the East coast, but if you're in Nebraska and you want to travel to Grand Island, I will be setting up shop with the Tank Zombie Studios booth. I would love to uh, talk Grolix podcast. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll have our uh, contact information and stuff there as usual. Um, but you can find me there. You can also find our, our guest from the last episode, Jeff Geegan and his son, Declan Geegan will be there as well as several people that we, you know, interact with and know in the podcast and artistic community. So that's coming up. Yeah. Be there. It's free. It's free. It's a square. It's a free convention. That's pretty rare. It is. Yeah. You actually have, I mean, like you go, you'll actually have money so that you can eat. Weird. Whoa. <laughs> you might even be able to buy things at the con. I don't know why any con would ever do this. <laughs> Other than no, it. those aren't cheap to put on. No. GCU's back. We're, in the, we're in the middle of Tarantino, season Tarantino, talking Tarantino movies. And we're going to have guests this season. Melanie's going to be on an episode. Yeah. Talking about four rooms. Grindbin will hopefully be on an episode. Jesse's going to be on an episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like my favorite of all the ones that you've kind of thrown out there for Taron Threno is True Romance. Really? I love that movie. I love it. Are you haunted by shadow people in the middle of the night? Do you secretly love all things creepy and spooky, enjoying ghost stories and horror fiction from the best storytellers? Do you have a true ghost experience you want to share, but no one will believe you? If yes, listen to The Professionals on What Are You Afraid of? Power Paranormal Show, Friday nights at 9pm on ParaX Radio and at www.whatareyouafraidofpodcast.com. 
What are you afraid of on Terra X? Our creepy and demented hosts are on call to provide you with all your spooky needs with true ghost stories, interviews, indie music, and new horror fiction. We are ready to scare you. Para X. This has been Randy. Steel isn't strong, boy. Grolix is stronger. This is Jesse. And one does not simply walk into Grolix. This is Melanie. And from deep within the bowels of the pit of hate, I summon Grolix. Thank you for listening to the Grolix Podcast. The Grolix Podcast is a production of the Electronic Media Collective and Vorpal Arrow Studios. For more Grolix Podcast, visit GrolixPodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast, or follow us on Twitter at Grolix Podcast. We're also everywhere. All the time. All at once. close my shades at like 3 30 sometimes just because the sun's in my face i don't want to i want to see the outside world but but that darn sunshine won't just stay in one spot <laughs> i want to see the outside world but it's just too bright <laughs> <laughs>